Hey guys, it's David Peterson, Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. You know, a lot of people are intimidated by innovation. They think that it's somebody else's job to be innovative, not me. I, I, that's not my. That's not my job. And yet, there is an opportunity for all of us to be innovative. But we have to think about innovation differently in order for us to see the possibilities of how innovation can be personally rewarding for us as individuals or perhaps for our organizations. I encourage you to take a listen to this week's podcast, What is Innovation? Hey, greetings, welcome. My name is David Peterson. I'm a professional speaker, author, and a seeker of innovation. Just basically trying to figure out all the different kinds of ways that we as individuals and even businesses, organizations can get more innovative. And I really think that there's an opportunity for us to drive our personal development and growth or the growth of our organizations and our business through innovation. That we could be more driven to think about innovation as a way to actually improve and grow um, and develop. So I appreciate you spending a few minutes uh, to chat with me here today on this uh, podcast, Innovation Driven Growth. So what if I, what if I asked you this question? How innovative are you? Let's suppose that we were sitting at my artisan coffee shop called The Beanery in Valdosta, Georgia, and we were both sitting there having a nice Bali blue, you know, finely roasted that my son Kurt just roasted, you know, that morning. And we're sitting there having steeped this uh, coffee in a French press. And we're just sitting around and maybe you didn't know who I was. Maybe we, we just happened to be sitting at the bar together. And I looked at you and the first words out of my mouth were, hey, how innovative are you? Hmm. Think about that. If somebody came up and said, how innovative are you? Regardless of how innovative you actually are, I think our human, our sort of natural human reaction would be to be like, yeah, uh, of course I'm innovative. I mean, think about it. It's kind of like somebody coming up and saying, hey, how much of a doofus are you? Uh, right? And and your first thought was, yeah, that's right. I'm the biggest doofus ever. Right? <laughs> of course not. Nobody, we don't think of ourselves as a doofus. And if somebody asked how innovative are you, we'd be like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm innovating all the time. Uh, in reality, uh, for most of us, we may not be thinking of innovation really all that often. And what I find as I work with organizations, as I talk to people, I'm very blessed. I get a chance to speak at conferences. I do strategic planning. I work with uh, mostly financial institutions, banks, and credit unions, and the fintech companies, financial technology companies that sort of play in that space. So I spend a lot of time talking with people of all different ages, uh, all different types uh, of departments and, and jobs within those uh, financial services, financial institutions. And as I talk to them, generally speaking, most everyone has the idea that innovation is not their job, 
right? I mean, literally, if you say, well, what part of your job is innovation? Uh, 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 mm -hmm, uh, uh, you know, right? So they're not thinking about their job as innovation. And in fact, perhaps not surprisingly, they will point to somebody else or another department and say, well, that's, that's not my job. That's it's those guys' jobs. And so maybe they're, maybe they're pointing at IT or, or maybe they're pointing at uh, software development. If that's a, you know, if it's a fintech company, there's people that, that actually write software. It's like, well, those guys, uh, those men and women over there and that other C over there, those cubes over there, those are all the innovative folks. And so I, my job is customer support. I'm just answering phone calls or I'm just doing accounting, right? Or I'm, I'm in the legal department trying to figure out how to uh, get these contracts right. So we, we oftentimes don't even, we don't even think that our job is really to be innovative. And I think this is one of the fundamental things that I have to address with people right away is, well, if you say that innovation is not your job, perhaps the problem is, is how we are defining what innovation is. And so, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was talking to my sister, Linda. She and I were right next to each other, the fourth and fifth of five children, uh, I was closer to her than any of my other siblings, and we remain close to this day. And we were just talking, and we weren't talking about this, but our conversation led me to remember very, very early on, you know, we were both under 10, and we had a candy bar, like a regular size candy bar like you'd buy from the store. And we were fighting about how we were going to split up this candy bar, Right. And I just remember my dad, I don't think we actually went to my dad to say like, hey, we got this problem. But he happened by while we were uh, probably arguing uh, about how, what was the proper way in order to divvy up this candy bar. And he took one glance at us and then immediately sized up the situation and said, hey, it's real simple. One of you uh, cut the candy bar in half. The other person gets first choice. Right. So, so immediately, right, you stop arguing and you think about that for a minute. It says, well, if I cut the candy bar in half, I could cut the candy bar like two thirds, one third. But if my sister Linda gets the first choice, then she's going to get the two thirds piece of candy. I'm going to get a third. So, obviously, with that kind of solution, very Solomon wisdom like solution, I might add, you're going to be as careful as possible to cut it exactly in half. In fact, if memory serves, and I don't know if Linda remembers this, but I think we, we got a ruler out to figure out exactly how long the candy bar was so that, so that we could cut it exactly in half. Now, why, why didn't we do that right from the very beginning, right? So you, now you got to get into siblings fussing and fighting and, you know, age old cats and dogs, you know, going at each other, right? But here's the, here's the reason I tell that crazy story is, is as I think back on it, I, I think about that was my really first sort of rational thought about something that was innovative. I thought about that afterwards, like how, how cool a solution that was that uh, Linda and my dad came up with. Well, I don't know if you listen to that go, I, that's just wisdom. I mean, how in, you know, innovative is that? And, and herein lies the rub. If we think about innovation only in terms of building something, right? Can an idea be innovative? Can a, can a piece of wisdom be determined to be innovative? If you think back 
to all of the things. Like if I told you right now, quick, name three really amazing innovations that have happened in the last five years. Many of you could probably come up with three, right? And, you know, you you sort of, you know, kind of think through and you go, oh, well, I, I, I could get an X, I could think of Y, I could think of Z. But I will bet all of those are physical things. They're all something that got built or invented and that's what's in your mind, right, as an innovation. So there are these different types of innovations, but whenever we see that word, we immediately think about something that's disruptive and breakthrough and that it's a physical thing. And, and when we start thinking about big physical things, then that, that kind of comes into question, maybe based on our educational background or just what our jobs are, or whatever it is, we're saying that's I don't, I don't get the chance to think about and work on those kinds of things. Let me give you an example of the kind of big breakthrough disruptive thing that I'm talking about. Several years back, a team from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, most people recognize it as being one of the headier, more august uh, universities that we have here in the U.S. They had a team of scientists that came up with a process to transmit electricity through the air. Yeah. So think about this for a minute. So if you look at the picture, they've got a coil that's actually connected to, uh, you know, like a regular uh, outlet, you know, so it, so there's a, there's a power source that's actually taking electricity from, from a regular outlet. But then they're transmitting to another coil that's lighting a light bulb that's not connected to any power source. And uh, if I can just sort of approximate in the picture, it looks like about 20 feet is how far they're sending that power. So, so think about that for just a minute. What, what would that mean? What if, what if I really could power any kind of device that requires power through the air? Pretty big deal, right? Would would you call it disruptive? Would you say, well, that's a that's a big breakthrough? I think so. I think so. Uh, we are today in our homes and our businesses in, in almost every possible way bound to wherever those outlets happen to be. So if I want to place a lamp in a particular place, how far away from the outlet is the cord reach? Can I get it there? If I'm going to set up a training area in, in a, you know, let's say I have a training room and I have a row of desks and I have 20 students all using computers, I have to plan for and specifically make sure that power is available at each one of those workstations in order for them to do the class. So this idea of where receptacles are really binds us to a lot of physical things of where things can be. But but now, now, the brainiacs at MIT have figured this out. And so they have this, this power floating through the air. So is it is it possible now that in our homes and in our, our businesses, that power will just be ubiquitous? It'll just be in the walls. It'll be everywhere. So any power device so fitted with this receptacle for receiving power wirelessly would, would work. I could set my lamp here, or I could uh, just have a bunch of uh, PCs in a room, laptops in a room, and everyone's doing their training, and they can move stuff around without worrying about where outlets are. I, I'd say, 
I'd say that's pretty disruptive. I think that's a huge breakthrough, right? Well, that's not something that David Peterson's sitting around thinking about. David Peterson doesn't have the engineering background nor the nor the the training, or, or quite frankly, it's not even along the thought pattern of something that I would have thought was possible to do that I would be playing around with trying to come up with a way to do it. Um, but to me, it's kind of the example of this big thing that we would say, that's not my job. I don't, I don't sit around and think of big breakthrough disruptive ideas like that. It's not what I do. Now, how commercially viable is this, uh, this thing that MIT has come up with? It's, it's going to be a while. It, eight years, 10 years from now, maybe by the time that's there. So it's not, it's not something that's going to, you know, happen right away. But, but there's no question about its level of impact. So, so when we think of innovation, if all we think about are big breakthrough ideas, then it's natural that we might have the, who am I? How is it that I'm supposed to come up with the equivalent of that kind of disruptive breakthrough thing um, in in my field? Now, let me just say this. Let me just let me just say this. Maybe you'll think of one. Maybe just maybe, you know, you'll have a an epiphany. You'll have a a big breakthrough. The the literal equivalent of the thought bubble with a light bulb going off in, in your head. If that happens. Do me a favor. Write it down. Write it down. Open up a voice memo on your phone and just record whatever it is you're thinking. I'll cover this in a future podcast, but but your right brain is in charge of creativity and coming up with ideas, but it's not in charge of memory. So you're going to, if you don't capture ideas when they come, you literally could have the equivalent in your field of wireless electricity. And that thought pops into your head. You don't write it down. You don't capture it anyway. And then later on, you won't remember what it was. I promise you. I promise you it happens just like that. So so if you get a big breakthrough, please, 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 please write a note, jot a note down, make a recording of it so that you have it. But the likelihood is, hey, you know, big ideas may not fall out of the sky and splat on your head. Okay. Um, No problem. Does that mean that we can't be innovative? If I don't come up with one of those big, disruptive, breakthrough, physical things, well, then innovation is really not for me. Or I, I would I would have to say I'm not innovative. No, there's other kinds of innovation. One type of innovation that I really like can be best described as incremental innovation, meaning you're not creating something big or, or even new. You're just making incremental changes. You're you're adding on or you're using something in a new and unique way or combining multiple things together in a unique way that generates a new type of usability, that somehow something is different about it than it was before, and it becomes very, very useful and innovative, right? So, okay, what's the what's a, a good example of that? Well, probably most everybody listening to this podcast has, you know, an, uh, an Apple or Samsung uh, smartphone, iPhone, uh, Android phone. 
And on there, you have all of these different apps. And if you go back to when the iPhone really first came out, there wasn't a single thing that that iPhone can do that didn't already exist, right? So if you wanted to make a call, if you wanted to take a picture, if you wanted to play a song, if you wanted to read a map, every one of those things and many others that the iPhone could do already existed in other products. So, so it was the kind of the unique way of that user experience, how all of that got put together and, and put into a very artistic, sleek design. Um, there was a lot of ridicule early on about the fact that it didn't have a keyboard. You think about the kinds of devices, you know, that were very popular when the iPhone came out. A good example is the BlackBerry. Some of you listening to this may not understand what I'm talking about. Go Google BlackBerry and you'll see that it was a device that had a fairly small and not very graphic intensive screen, but it had a full keyboard. So you could QWERTY, you know, uh, keys and so forth. In fact, there is a, there is a classic YouTube uh, video of Steve Ballmer, who at the time was CEO of Microsoft literally laughing and ridiculing the iPhone as, as being just like a, a worthless toy uh, because it didn't have a keyboard, right? So, so sorry, Steve. Uh, it turns out that, that Apple um, made it just fine uh, without the keyboard. But the, the idea that these things were already out there but now brought together in some kind of new and unique way, okay, so, so that's an incremental that's an incremental innovation. And so it, it, within whatever your particular field is, whatever your job or occupation is, maybe it's possible that you would have the same type of thing where there would be a certain uh, combination of things that you put together, uh, even if it's not as big and grandiose as the iPhone. Maybe it's just a, a different way of looking at uh, different processes that you have and how those steps could be altered and changed to streamline a process becomes incremental innovation. Well, is that it? Is incremental innovation all that all that you could really focus on? Nah, I don't, I'm not sure about that either. What if what if you looked at stuff that was old and tired, worn out, uh, even physical things that were kind of at the end of its life cycle, and you were able to convert those into something new or or let's say newly usable, right? So I like to sail. Uh, I enjoy sailing. Uh, it, it, to me, you know, there's nothing like being out uh, like the Caribbean and, and, and the, there's no engine running and you're, you're running on the power of the sails and you're managing uh, all the different things to try and run uh, with or against the wind in, in the best possible way. It's just, uh, I don't think there's anything more exhilarating for me than, than sailing. But sailing now is clearly more about enjoyment. There's people that race, uh, you know, so, so we don't have to sail as a business really anymore. But go back to the 1800s, I think the 1860s, for example. If you wanted to move people or goods, say, from the Far East over to the uh, North America, you would have to get one of those ships, you know, you know, call them tall ships or whatever you want. It's a big three-masted schooner with all those, you know, 48 different sails. Uh, and, you know, it might take you weeks and weeks, even months, right, uh, to sail across. But that, that's what 
That's what transportation was. There were no engines on there. Uh, sometimes they would get stuck out in the middle of the ocean and the wind wouldn't blow for days and days and they were just bobbing around out there and waiting for the, for the wind to come. Um, that's, what, that's how you moved people in, in goods back during those times. Well, we don't have to do that anymore, right? So if, if you think about all the stuff that gets made in places like China and then gets shipped over to the United States, they don't, they don't ship that on sailboats anymore. They have those big container ships, right? Well, container ships, those big ocean-going vessels stacked four, five, six, eight, ten high with those rail cars, they burn the dirtiest fuel that exists. It's like, it's almost like they pull oil up out of the ground and then just put it right into the engine of these ships. By, by one estimate, I, this blew me away, by one estimate, one container ship, one container ship in a year puts as much greenhouse gases into the environment as 50 million cars. Did, did you catch that? One container ship. Same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as 50 million cars. How many container ships do you think there are sailing around every day? <laughs> it's, it's a staggering, just if you think about just that, and, and I know that we, you know, you, you hear a lot of people talking about how we can reduce our carbon footprint and all of that, but, but just focus for a minute on just container ships and what it would mean if we could reduce those emissions. Well, there's a company called SkySail. And basically what they did is they went back to the, to the 1860s and said, you know, we, we moved all those ships across the ocean with sails. Why don't we employ that? And they literally have a sail, kind of looks like a parachute. Uh, if you, if you uh, Google SkySail, you'll see this thing. It, it's kind of shaped like a parachute. And while they're out in the shipping lanes, they shoot these sky sail parachutes up and the wind pulls the ship along to the extent where fuel uh, is reduced in terms of what is required on that trip anywhere from as low as 10% to as high as 40%, depending on the uh, how much wind they have in the, in the distance of the trip. So right away, you can see where a huge but positive impact would occur just in reducing this dirty nasty fuel that gets burned in all of these container ships. What would that mean if there was something that was old and tired and, and, and worn out in your business, but you found a new sky sail type way of, of using it? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that might be for you, but, but all you have to do is look around and start thinking about the kinds of tasks that you have, things that you need to do and what you have available to, to use it. And Maybe you get creative and, and actually find a way, come up with a way that, that you can harness something that's old and, and worn out uh, into something brand new. So, so we need to be very careful about how we think about innovation. So if we don't think about innovation correct, we will just not even look for it at all. We'll ignore it altogether as being something not um, meaningful or useful or there's no way that I'm going to come up with anything. So I want to give you a definition for innovation. So this is David Peterson's definition. There's no the Association of the Brotherhood of People Who Create Definitions of Innovation that have approved this definition. It's just what I came up with. Pretty pithy 
literally five words long, my definition of innovation. Ready? Creativity expressed, manufactured, and consumed. Let me say it again. Creativity expressed, manufactured, and consumed. Let me let me just kind of it's gonna take a minute to sink in, but let me just kind of give you a little color about why I think this definition really works. First of all, creativity. I truly believe that no innovation occurs without creativity. Creativity and innovation are not the same thing, and we often c- confuse those. We often conflate creativity and innovation, and we, we think they're interchangeable, but they're really not. Creativity is this idea of, of harnessing your right brain and coming up with, you know, coming up with an idea, that spark. Maybe there was one person on that MIT team that originally said, hey, could we do this? And then they had to do a lot of research and work and, and stuff to you know come up with it. But there might have been an initial spark. The idea of the, the creativity has to be there in order for you to do anything truly innovative. But if all I have is a creative thought and idea, I still have to be able to express that. And by express it, I mean to say it, to tell another person, to to, to walk up with somebody and said, oh my gosh, I have a great idea. Here's how we can, you know, move electricity through the air. And they go, really? How? But I can't explain it. It's like, well, I don't know how to say it. It's like, well, uh, sorry. If you can't even explain the idea to me, I don't think I can believe that this is some kind of innovation that we should spend time and money on. So I gotta be able to explain or write it down. I could I, I could go create an idea and literally write up. Uh, here's how I think this could work. Now it may work, it may not work, but at least the idea, the creative idea, being light bulb, then I express it. I write it down. Creativity expressed. That idea now is captured. It may work. It may not work. It may be good. It may be horrible. But the first two steps, having an idea getting creative, and then expressing it, writing it down. Manufactured. Just because just because I have an idea doesn't mean I can build it. And it doesn't matter whether it's a physical thing or if it's a procedure or a process or even wisdom like my dad and my sister Linda and I in the candy bar. I've got to be able to actually produce, to, to make that idea come to fruition. I have to be able to create it and make it. If the MIT guys came up with the idea and wrote it all down and couldn't light that light bulb, then they haven't created an innovation yet. I've got to be able to make it work, to physically produce it, to put it into action, to update the procedure, to create the new process. Whatever that idea is that I've expressed, can I build it? Can I create it? Creativity expressed, manufactured, and consumed. This is where it gets a little, maybe a little bit different, but I don't care whether you can build something. If nobody uses it, if it has no utility, can you truly say that it's an innovation? I know... Every now and then I'm flipping channels late night and you see some infomercial for some thing that's been creative. And I think to myself, who is buying that? 
seriously? Right? It's it's another way to chop vegetables or it's a you know magic juicer, or it's a whatever, whatever. But I mean, obviously they're advertising on TV, so some people are buying those things. But I, I think to myself, uh, there is a solution in search of a problem. I truly believe that if I'm gonna call something innovative, not only do I have to get that thing built, created, produced, but it has to have utility. There has to be people that actually want to use it and get value out of using it. Whether they buy it or not, that's a, you know, it, it depends on whether you're talking about some product that you're trying to sell or, you know, is it some kind of process or procedure that you're putting into place. But in order for it to be an innovation, I think it has to have all of those four components, creativity, expressed, manufactured, and consumed. If you want steal my definition, take it for your own. When somebody says they have an innovation, ask them if they can walk you through all four components. What is your idea? If they know, if, if they'll tell you what their idea is, they've already got, they're already halfway there. They've already been able to express the idea. And then the question is, is, is it, or can it be built? And what kind of utility would it have? Now I mentioned that creativity and innovation, not the same thing. Let me give you an example of the difference between creativity and innovation. You may or may not remember a guy named Felix Baumgartner. He's an Austrian who teamed up with Red Bull and decided that he was going to go up in a capsule and jump from the edge of space. And if you haven't seen it, I highly encourage you to go out to YouTube and Google, you know, or Google Felix Baumgartner jump from space. And they actually have a video of this jump, uh, the whole thing. But basically they did, you know, all of this research, they send him up in this capsule. Um, so literally like above him, all he sees is the, you know, the blackness of space and stars and, and whatever else. And the, the earth is the blue ball below him. The door opens up, he goes to the edge and literally he jumps out. <laughs> And in that video, very quickly, he is out of control. He's kind of spinning. I don't know, maybe they call it a flat spin, but he's he looks like for about nine minutes of the nine minute and 20 seconds that it took him to get to the earth, that he was going to wind up as a very small bump in the Kansas landscape. And yet, you'll see these pictures of him standing um, in this Kansas cornfield with, you know, like a thumbs up, big grin. Uh, hey, uh, can I have a Red Bull? Right. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the, the, the action bubble above his head. I need a Red Bull, please. So here's my point. Every one of us, you, me, anybody could do the first part of that. We could get in the capsule and go up to the edge of space and jump. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have willingly done that. I, I don't care what all work they did to figure out how to make it work. I think they could have drugged me and then put me in the spacesuit looking thing and then put me in the capsule like strapped down to the chair. And then when it got up to whatever thousands of miles uh, above the earth, it's not thousands of miles, hundreds of miles, whatever it was, um, <laughs> the door would open and the chair would move out and it would literally eject me out. That's the only way that David Peterson would be falling through space. 
that part's creative. Getting, you know, figuring out how to go up to the edge of space and, and jump, you got to be pretty creative to do that. But what's innovative is jumping from the edge of space and living, right? The fact that Felix, like the, the fact that they figured out all of the things that they would need to do in order to manage this fall and account for all of the variables and, and how he came out of that that crazy spin that he was in to, to manage to land and, and be standing there in the Kansas landscape with a, with a thumbs up, that's innovation. So, so when we think about the difference between creativity and innovation, maybe the best way to think about it is what's the outcome? It, it, I've got to focus on some kind of outcome that becomes positive for me or others that might be you know, experience in this. That consumption has to be good and inherently altruistic or beneficial in some way in order for it to be innovative. Otherwise, it may just be a novelty or, you know, something quirky or fun. But, well, even if it was fun, it would be beneficial. Uh, there has to be a positive outcome. And I think as if we focus on something that's creative, but it doesn't have a very positive outcome, it's not going to get really to the innovation standpoint. So, um, creativity versus innovation, we want to focus on positive outcomes. So I mentioned earlier that I spend a lot of time working with financial institutions and fintech companies. And so we think about all the time how, how innovations happen. And there have been some, some really good ones uh, in recent years with, uh, with financial services. But I got to thinking about this a few years back about what what are the, what has to happen in order for some type of innovation to truly kind of catch hold and become not just not just mildly successful but wildly ex successful and uh i think i think the innovation thrives where you have an intersection between what's possible to do with technology what is viable in the marketplace and maybe we describe as as what's desirable to users, the, the people who actually use that thing. So what's possible with technology, what's viable in the marketplace, what's desirable to users. So if you drew those as three intersecting you know circles, then in the middle is the overlap where all three of those things exist. And it doesn't mean that innovation can't happen in other parts, but in that intersection where all three of those are present, innovation thrives, innovation happens. And a great example of this in that financial services realm is mobile remote deposit capture, the ability for you to use your mobile device to take a picture of the front and back of a check and have it automatically deposited in your account. Well, it's a service that a lot of us take for granted now. And, and you know, I, I, I'm proud to say that myself and one of the companies I founded, Goldleaf Technologies, was on the forefront of that technology going all the way back in 2001 when we first started scanning checks for converting them into automated clearinghouse, um, ACH transactions. But what happened in 2004 was a law that changed that was a direct result of the 9-11 terrorist attacks that said that a image of a check had the same legal ramifications, say, in a court of law as the actual check. So that that one law change, uh, which actually went into effect in the uh, latter half of 2004, now meant that a picture of a check could be used as the record or the source uh, record for uh, for saying that a transaction actually occurred. So the law uh, had to had to change uh, 
uh, in order for now uh, pictures of checks to actually be um, used as proof. Well, uh, that opened the doors for businesses to use scanners to start scanning checks uh, instead of having to, to make commercial deposits. And so remote deposit capture started flourishing. But also, as you follow through that same kind of time frame in 2005, 2006, the uh, smartphones were, were starting to have cameras uh, being added where you, could, where you could take pictures. So now, all of a sudden, it was possible to take a picture using your phone and of course, as soon as the laws changed, and now I have a camera on my phone, now I have the two things together in my hand at whatever time and place or wherever I happen to be, where now it wasn't just about businesses capturing checks. Now any individual could do that. So, so what's possible to do with technology? Boom, I have the camera in my phone. What's viable in the marketplace? The law changed in order to make this uh, legal. Desirable to users, you bet, because now I can make a deposit at a time and place of my choosing. I don't have to wait to where the bank's open or get in my car, drive to a location where I can make a deposit. So, so think about that intersection, what's possible with technology, what's viable in the marketplace, what's desirable to users. And maybe there's, maybe there's uh, ideas. If you, if you said, well, okay, um, David, you're encouraging me to maybe think of some innovative things. Where should I start? Well, uh, I would start with maybe just some little quick bits about what's going on in your industry with what you can do these days with technology, what's viable in the marketplace with desirable users, and then just sort of play around with where do those overlap? Where, where do I find a place where all of these three intersect? And that's where I would spend my time. You know, uh, and and again, just just remember this: that you're not going to just think and come up with an idea. You need to be thinking of a lot of ideas. Um, as somebody who's generally known to be trying to you know think about and come up with innovative ways to to think and to encourage people to innovate, a lot of people, you know, I'll speak at a conference and somebody will ask me and say, "Well, how do you how do you come up with innovative ideas?" And I'll ask them, well, how many bad ideas have you come up with recently? And they look at me like, what? I, I'm, not, I'm not sitting around thinking of bad ideas. I said, well, then it's probably unlikely you're going to come up with a good one. So we can't focus on good ideas. We just have to focus on ideas. Um, you, you, this is a volume game. Uh, some, I don't even know who did this. Some group studied and says it takes 30 ideas to come up with a good one. I don't know. I don't know how they figured that out. Did they did they literally you know interview hundreds and hundreds of people who had thought of good ideas to figure out that the average across all of this it took 50 for that guy, could take 10 for this person, so the average is 30. I, I don't know. But I don't dispute it. I don't I don't think it's wrong. Um, if you're not coming up with bad ideas, you're not coming up with ideas. And if you're not coming up with ideas, you're not gonna come up with a good idea. So stop trying to think of a good idea and just think of ideas. Just come up with ideas. Do, do your own brainstorming. Just jo you know, jot them down or, or record them in your phone, whatever. And maybe, just maybe, you know, you'll come up with, a, with an idea that, that you go, wait, that, this is kind of interesting. That's, you know, it's got the, the seed of an idea there. Uh, and, and you, you know, can talk about it with other people in your industry who ha have knowledge of things. And who knows? Who knows? what you would come up with if, but you would just 
start thinking of some ideas, just sort of capturing them. And then at the water cooler on the coffee pot, you, you throw out a what if, what if, what if we moved that thing over there so that, you know, we could cut out these number of steps each day and it saves us five minutes. This is one of my, <laughs> this is one of my favorite discussions. We don't value time. Uh, time is money. It's like, you know, five minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but five minutes turns out to be 1,320 minutes a year or 22 hours. Multiply that by five people, 10 people, 20 people, 100 people all doing something, and it adds up to really significant savings. Let's stop kidding ourselves that small innovations are unimportant. Small innovations are crucial because they get innovation started. They are meaningful in of themselves, 22 hours a year. I think I can figure out how to do something meaningful in that time, perhaps just using that time to be thinking innovatively. But small innovations do something else. They lead towards medium-sized innovations, which leads to bigger innovations, and who knows, maybe even breakthrough disruptive innovations. Just by starting small and concentrating on coming up with ideas, then bouncing those ideas off of other people who might refine and improve your ideas, who would see things a little differently than you do, leads to something that might actually make a huge difference for you personally or for your company. So my question for you is will you be innovative? Will you, will you take on the challenge of trying to make innovation happen? And let me just say that if you're listening to this podcast and you're a senior, you're, you're the CEO, you're, you're the head cheese, you're, you're in charge of everything. You know what? You can make innovation happen across your entire organization. Nothing would stop the wildfire of innovation if you decided that it was important. Or maybe you're not the CEO. Maybe you're just a senior leader. Maybe you're just a manager. You're, you're somebody who oversees, you know, a whole department. You could be the CFO overseeing all of the finances. Or you might just be a supervisor that has four individuals that work in the shipping department. doesn't matter. You can decide that you're going to be innovative with your group, that you're going to focus not on the whole rest of the company, but just on the parts that you control and figure out how to come up with some innovative ideas. But you know what? Maybe you're not even that. Maybe you're just you. Maybe you work in a cube and, you know, you come in and you do what you do and, you, you know, you work hard and you follow all the rules and procedures. You can be innovative right where you are. You can decide that you can be looking for, be alert to the kinds of incremental or process changes that might just might be something that saves you personally five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes a day. You might be in a position where you see and hear things uh, that you have no ability to be uh, changing or that you, 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 can't, you can't go and tell some other group or area, hey, you guys could innovate here. But, but, you, but you have ideas and then all of a sudden you're in a setting or somebody asks a question and you get to raise your hand and say, well, you know, I had this idea. And you throw it out there, right? So you can decide that you're going to be individually innovative, just you and just wherever you are. And I encourage you 
to think about innovation in a different light. Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated. Uh, Every single person has the opportunity within their God-given talents and abilities to be innovative in some form or fashion. We just have to decide that we are going to spend the time and that it's worth it to spend that time to be innovative. So let's recap. Innovation is a lot of different things. It can be big and intimidating, and that can scare us off. But we can decide that we have the ability to look at innovation differently. And we further decided that there was a definition of innovation called creativity manufactured, uh, creativity expressed, manufactured, and consumed. Creativity expressed, manufactured, and consumed. And that if we would follow that pattern, we can not only come up with ideas, but we can write them down or talk about them. We can actually go build something or a process and that there's value in getting them consumed. We talked about the fact that we can look for innovations and the intersection with what's possible to do with technology, what's viable in the marketplace, what's desirable to users. And we decided that regardless of how much power you have or lack thereof, you can choose to be innovative, whether it's just for you or whether it's something that you drive through your entire department or your entire company. Find time, make time to think creatively and convert that creativity into innovation. I look forward to chatting with you again on a podcast soon. Thank you. 